Hey, good morning. I, my name's Steve Wall, and I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. And I, I'm so excited to see that video. Um, one, because it's cool to have 20 of our middle school students go to um, a camp like Believe. But I'm more excited than that to see the work that God is doing through our student ministries right now. We have um, a, a new leader, relatively new leader in Jose Torres, uh, and he spends most of his Sundays over at our Noblesville campus, but he's here occasionally. But, but he leads a great group of volunteers in both our middle school and high school ministries. And I just thought I'd take this opportunity to tell you a couple things. First of all, if you're a middle school student and you're not going to our connection group on Sunday mornings, you're missing out. There's some cool stuff happening in the middle school ministry, and I think you see a little bit about that uh, in that video. I've talked to two or three middle school students that attend this campus, and um, each of them in one way or another has told me that I don't go to the middle school group because nobody else goes. And so what I've determined is that our middle school group is a little bit smaller because nobody goes to it. Does that make sense? And so I just want to tell you, if you're in middle school, uh, there's some cool stuff happening and you should go. And we're going to dismiss that group right now. Uh, Angie Breckheisen is in the back of the room, our fabulous leader. If you want to join the middle school connection group, you should go do that uh, right now. I encourage you to do that. Also, high school students, uh, we have a high school group that meets on Wednesday nights. Uh, and uh, you may not know that, but there's information in your program about that. They meet at our Noblesville campus. Thank you guys for going to the middle school group. Uh, they meet at our Noblesville campus. Maybe it's a little inconvenient for you. Dick, you're not in middle school. I know that. Um, maybe it's a little inconvenient for you to go to our Noblesville campus, but there's a, a large group, a larger group of high school students that are gathering on Wednesday nights. And if you've not checked that out, uh, you should do that. And there's one other thing in your worship program for high school students. There's a camp like Believe, uh, but it's more mature, kind of, um, because it is still have youth pastors there, so it can't be real mature. But there's a group, there's a camp for our high school students in Holland, Michigan coming up in June. And there is information in your worship program on that. And if you are a high school student or have a high school student, I went to that a few years ago as a leader. And I'm telling you, it will change your student's life. And so if they haven't been a part of that, uh, they should join that too. I wanted to take one other minute before I've got a lot of important stuff to talk about with the sermon, but I wanted to thank our group of volunteers who was so awesome yesterday at the Carmel Marathon. Uh, we had about 25 of our volunteers that hosted a water stop uh, just about a half a mile uh, east of here on Main Street. And it was a great morning. We had uh, a lots of great interact. We had one of the most enthusiastic water stops along the way. Uh, I had the opportunity in advance to drive the course um, in, in the pace car um, and um, kind of a car. And uh, I had the chance to drive the course and I got to see all the water stations. I'm telling you, Genesis Church, you would be proud of your volunteers because they were so enthusiastic and so encouraging. And even to the people at the end where people were walking by after six and six and a half hours and really needed encouragement, um, our group was so great, so awesome. So thanks for doing that. They stood out in the cold for six hours. Yeah, thank you. Getting wet and uh, did a great job. Uh, so if you were here last week, you know that last Sunday was my birthday. Uh, most of you sang to me. Thanks for that. Um, and as you get older, as you know, birthdays become less and less of a big deal. Um, but I was interested in the conversation. I wanted to tell you about the conversation we had at the dinner table last Sunday night. Because here's what always happens when we celebrate a birthday in my family. Uh, I, it was my birthday. And my girls started talking about what they want for their birthday. Right? <laughs> Because that's what kids uh, get with birthdays. That's, it's all about the gifts. And so uh, my daughters, one of them just had a birthday in February. And she was saying, well, for my next birthday, here's what I want to get as a gift. And then my other daughter, whose birthday isn't until October, was saying, well, for my next birthday, here's what I want to get. I mean, kids love gifts, right? I mean, as adults, uh, we don't get as many gifts. But kids love gifts. And they get excited about getting gifts. And so we always... We, 
we kind of tease our girls a little bit, you know, when they have a gift and they're trying to shake it and figure out what it is. They said, well, we got you socks and coat hangers again this year, you know. And so um, that's what we tease them about liking to play with. But, but sometimes when we get a gift, uh, we can be disappointed, can't we? Uh, I wonder how many of you are late night TV fans that maybe saw uh, Jimmy Kimmel's experiment at Christmas uh, called I Gave My Kid a Horrible Christmas Gift. Did anybody see this? And so what he did was he started a YouTube contest and he had parents uh, in advance of Christmas uh, talk to their kids and give them Christmas gifts that were very disappointing and open them up and record it on video and then put this video on YouTube with this headline, Hey, Jimmy Kimmel, I gave my kid a horrible Christmas gift. And so I was watching some of these this week preparing for this message. And, and you saw kids throw temper tantrums and, and cry and say, My, why? Why would you do this to me? Why would you give me such a horrible gift? Because the parents would do a really great job of like building this up. You know, last year I got you an Xbox 360. Well, this is even better. And they'd open it up and it was like an avocado or something, you know. And so... Just to see the disappointment on their faces, it was priceless, really. I mean, it was priceless. I mean, because kids aren't very good at hiding their disappointment. Now, as adults, we do a better job at hiding our disappointment, don't we? I mean, the feelings don't change, but we do a better job of hiding our disappointment. And and we know what it's like to expect one thing and get something else. And ladies, you are the best at this. Because you have the most experience with being disappointed with gifts, right? It's like you tell your husband, all female laughs. You tell your husband, okay, these are the jeans. This is the color. This is the size. This is the store. All they're giving you an errand. Okay. All you have to do is go buy them. Right. But, but guys like to get creative, right? And so you, you, you get the, get your box and you open it up and you think it's the jeans because it's the same size, same shape. You open it up and it's like, it's Spanx or something. I mean, it's like. It's the worst gift ever. Or, or guys, you want the new iPad and, and you get the box and it, it looks like an iPad box. But do you know what is remarkably similar to the size and shape of an iPad box? A book. A plain paper book with pages you have to turn and absolutely zero downloadable apps. It's the same shape, same size as an iPad. And, and even if we have the ability, a remarkable ability to smile and say, oh, thanks so much. We know what it feels like to experience disappointment. And, and we know that with gifts, uh, but we also know that in our life, too. I, I wonder how many of you have had a moment like that recently. Like, you know, you're getting ready to graduate from college, but you're going to have to move back in with mom and dad. You know, or you're just married and you spent a lot of time preparing for getting ready for a wedding and a honeymoon, but now you're back and all you have is like married life and you're living with this new person and, and uh, it, it's not the same as you thought it'd be. Or, or maybe you thought that getting a new place, like just having a change of scenery would be good for you. I mean, but, but you're realizing that the rest of your life came with you and the same problems and concerns and troubles are all there. Or, or you love to exercise, you know, you love to work out, you love to run or ride your bike or whatever, but you had that injury and that injury just keeps coming back and it's so disappointing because it's not how you figured your year would go. I mean, I know many of us have stories of how when we reflect on our lives, uh, we open the present that we thought we were getting, but it was really something else. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a disappointment. What's well, that same story that unfolds today 
as we look at the book of Ruth. You know, at Genesis Church this year, we're doing this series called The Story. And it's based on this book uh, called The Story. And uh, over 31 weeks, we are going through the entire story of the Bible. And if you're just joining us, if you're, if you're new here, don't worry. You're not too late to get in. Uh, we're starting chapter 9 today. If you don't have a copy of this book, it's okay. Because on the back of your worship program... Uh, what you'll see is a reading plan where you can take your own Bible, uh, and uh, because the story is in IV Scripture, you can take your own Bible and you can read through uh, the stories as we talk about them. And so uh, we're starting today in Ruth chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there, um, or you can turn to chapter 9 and the story. Now, the story of Ruth um, <laughs> involves a lot of different characters, a lot of plot twists and turns. And as you read through this book, you see what we see is all kinds of different emotions. I mean, you, you see expressions of joy, expressions of disappointment, uh, of anger, of confusion. And the beautiful part about a story like Ruth's story is that I think it reflects so many of our own stories. You know, Ruth's story takes place in a dark history, dark time in the history of Israel. As we saw last week during the period of the judges, uh, there were cycles of good times and bad times. Good times and bad times. And we've been talking about, as we go through the story, how there are really two different stories in the Bible. There's this lower story, which is the story of the people that we read. It's the story that you and I still live out every day. It's the story that goes up and down with our circumstances. And when we read through the, the story of the judges, we see very clearly the circumstances, how they go up and down and how we kind of live in this lower story. But there's also, at the same time, this upper story. And this upper story is God's story of how since the fall of man that he's been trying to redeem the world. And so that story never changes. And so I think as you read Ruth's story, you'll see this uh, very clearly. But during the judges, over 330 years, the entire nation kept going through this cycle as God's people constantly disobeyed. And as a result, they faced consequences. And if you remember last week, we talked about this cycle of disobedience, consequences, repentance, and freedom. Well, that's where we start today in the book of Ruth. So if you open to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, uh, what you'll see is this. At the very beginning, uh, we see this cycle starting again. Ruth 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there it is, right off the top. I mean, how many times have we seen this story in the nine weeks that we've been going through the story of the Bible? There's, uh, we see things like this, like famine, like drought, you know, like disease, like, like wandering, like pain. Well, Ruth's story is no different. So we start in the middle of famine. There's a middle of a famine. There was a famine in the land. <clears throat> and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. And so the first person we meet in this story is the patriarch of this family. His name is Elimelech. And, and it kind of reminds me of uh, the jungle, uh, uh, the lion sleeps tonight, right? Elimelech, Elimelech. But it's, that's just an easy way to remember how to pronounce that. Elimelech. And his family, he and his family are in a tough spot because they're living in this land, uh, this, this promised land, this land that God had given them, but they're starving. There's a famine in the land. I mean, they had to make this choice and it's a difficult choice. They, they could stay in this land that God, where God had placed them or they could move to a place outside, uh, to a foreign country where people really didn't know God. And so Elimelech makes a tragic decision, one that's going to have devastating consequences uh, for his family. He moves away from God and moves towards his own plan. 
in a place called Moab. Now, the second person we meet in verse 2 is his wife, Naomi. Now, uh, the names were really important in the Old Testament. Okay, today we just kind of pick names out of a baby book. Sometimes we add a Y to them so that they, uh, you know, we have to have a Y in our baby's names. They don't really mean anything. We just pick something that kind of sounds good or first and second middle names that go together. And we don't put a lot of thought into what names mean. But in Old Testament times, your name kind of defines you. And, and the name Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Now, uh, why that's important will become apparent in a minute, but, but their sons were named Malon and Kilion. Now, there are a lot of strange names in the Bible, all right? You, you don't meet too many Nebuchadnezzars or Methuselahs running around today. There aren't too many women, I don't think any, that I've ever met named Dorcas, okay? But these two names are strange even for the Bible. Malon means sick, and, and Kilion means either dying or exterminated, so it would be like saying, here are my kids, this is bird flu, and this is Terminix, okay? I mean, this is terrible, terrible names, uh, but that's going to become apparent here in a minute too. So if you, if you look at Ruth 1.3, it says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, this is really ironic because he moved away from the promised land to Moab because he was afraid of dying. You know, he's afraid of starving to death. And so they moved to Moab, they stayed there for a while, but then Elimelech dies. Verse 4 says, They married Moabite women, their sons, named Orpah. Now, not Oprah, okay? Orpah, although I understand this is where Oprah got her name from, but her mom misspelled it, but Orpah and Ruth. Now, these were Moabite women that married uh, the sons of these two Israelite boys. Now, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is real disappointment. I mean, for Naomi, this story just got real. It just got painful. Uh, it just got really discouraging. Now, in her lower story, okay, uh, things look bleak. But this is where we meet the real character, the real important person in this story. It's Ruth, one of the two daughters-in-law. Now, in a culture like this, in Moab, there was no help available for widows. What we have now on our hand is we have three widows living together uh, all alone without uh, their husbands. And so, um, there, there was no help available. And to top it all off, there was no church. You know, there was no welfare, no Social Security, no, no Medicare. Uh, and to top it all off, there was no church in Moab. There was no group of people who believed what Naomi and, uh, Naomi and her family had believed to gather around them and help them. And Moab hated Israel. I and mean, this was a, a real uh, horrible feud going on between Moab and Israel. And so Naomi's in a very difficult place. And so she decides that her best option is to turn around and go back home. Now, they've been here about 10 years. And she decides to turn around and go back home. So she gives this speech. It's a pity party, really, to her daughters-in-law. And she says, uh, you know, you girls, Orpah and Ruth, you go back home. Okay, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm... I'm I'm pretty old anyway. I'm probably just going to die soon. But, but you guys, you're young and, and, and you're still pretty and you could probably find another husband and you could find somebody to take care of you. you. You go. You just leave me alone. That's what she says. And so Orpah decides to go, but not Ruth. Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. Now, ladies, I'm guessing that you may not be that loyal to your mother-in-law. And even if you feel like you are, I'm guessing that much of the affection you feel for your mother-in-law probably has something to do with the love you have for your husband. And that maybe if your husband died, you probably wouldn't be willing to pick up and follow your mother-in-law 
anywhere she went. You probably wouldn't hang out with her all the time, but that's exactly what Ruth does here. And so if you skip down to verse 16, what you see is, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Now, maybe you've heard this verse at a wedding or something, like when the bride and groom pledge to stay together no matter what consequences uh, come up. Uh, but, but here it's actually used to describe a young woman's devotion to her mother-in-law. Now, don't miss what's happening here, okay? There's this, this great bond that's forming between this young lady and her mother-in-law. Uh, and even though Ruth grew up in a culture that didn't worship Naomi's God, I mean, in Moab, they worshipped a god named Chemosh. So they were a monotheistic culture. Okay, that's a big word that means they believed in one god. But it wasn't the one true god. They worshipped a god named Chemosh. Now, Chemosh means destroyer or subduer. And so this is the god that they worshipped. And, and so, in fact, the Moabites hated Israel's god. So from her upbringing, she would have uh, believed probably in one god. But she would have had no concept of a loving god. Of a, of a God that was a provider, of a God that was uh, supportive of his people. But somewhere in her interaction with her husband or, or with her in-laws, she gets this concept. Ruth had become, begun to see something good about the God of Israel. And so there's this relationship developing between Ruth and Naomi, but there's also this really intriguing interest in this God that is a good God. Listen to how author Beth Moore describes Ruth's actions in a difficult season. This, this will be on the screen. Um, I I think Ruth, the pagan from Moab, had more faith in God at this moment than Naomi, the Israelite. There was something in Ruth that knew, despite her mother-in-law's despair, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, was not a God who abandoned the needy and left them bitter and alone, as Naomi claimed. Rather, Ruth trusted that this God was a God of mercy and compassion, who might even be able to love a widow from Moab, an alien, a foreigner from a cursed people. She trusted that she, even she, could run to this God, Naomi's God, that Ruth wanted as her God too. And that even though she was of foreign descent, this God would have mercy on her and she could find refuge under his wings. She dared to believe that this God of the Hebrews wanted her. And so, Naomi starts this difficult Um, trip back to her hometown of Bethlehem. Did you catch that? Bethlehem. Hang on to that. That's going to be important in a minute. Ruth 119 says, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, could this be Naomi? Okay. So they get to this town of Bethlehem, which is a small town of about 200 people. How many of you are from a small town? Anybody? You know what it's like to be from a small town. My wife is from a small town. And uh, when, I used, when we were dating, I would go and pick her up in her town. And there was a sign there that said, population 703. Okay, and what I noticed was in the two years that we dated, and then in the first five years that we were married, as we went out to see her parents in her hometown, that that sign never changed. It always said, population 703. Now, I used to make fun of her for that. I used to say that it was because every time somebody got pregnant, a guy left town. And so they never had to change the sign. That was before I knew Jesus, though. I don't say things like that anymore. But you know what it's like to live in a small town. Everybody knows everybody else's business, right? When you live in a small town, they know all the details of your life. Well, everyone in Bethlehem knew that they had left at a difficult time. 
like during this famine, Naomi's family had deserted the town and now they're coming back. Really? Now you're coming back and this whole town is asking, can this be Naomi? Now, some scholars believe that her physical appearance had actually changed so much that like the the depression, the, the angst that she'd gone through from the loss of her husband and two sons had actually changed her physically. And, and that one look at her threw the whole village into confusion. And now that, and remember the Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant and sweet, right? But here's how Naomi responds to them in Ruth one twenty. She says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. See, names mean something. The name Mara means bitter. And she says, verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. She says, let's be very clear. She says, this is not what I expected. Look at what God has done to me. I'm angry with God. I was full when I left and I'm empty today. This is not the life I had expected. This isn't what I hoped for. You know, he has made my life bitter. He's brought all this pain and misfortune on me. Naomi says, it's his fault. Does any of that sound familiar to you? I mean, have you ever thought anything like that? Ever wondered anything like that? You expected one thing in your life from God, but, but it feels like you're getting the total opposite. And maybe there's something deep down inside of you that tells you it's God's fault. Now, if you read this story this week, and I hope you did, because it's a great story. It's an amazing story. I hope you step back and ask this question. What is this story all about? I mean, I hope you ask that. I I hope every time that we read scripture, I think we should ask this question. What is this story all about? And there's a chance that you didn't get too far into it. If you ask that question and you said, well, I get it. This story is about loss. It's about this woman who loses her husband, who loses her sons. And that's what this story is about. But is it really what this story is about? Does it have to be about loss? I mean, many of you probably know of Rick Warren. Uh, He's the lead pastor of Saddleback Church in California. He he wrote the book called The Purpose Driven Life, which is the second biggest bestseller of all time after the Bible. It's a book that really uh, impacted my life and and helped me along my journey as a believer, helped me find my way back to God. Well, a little over two weeks ago, uh, his 27-year-old son, who had struggled with mental illness and depression for many years, um, took a gun and ended his own life. And I can't even begin to imagine. I mean, how difficult, if you're a parent, how difficult would it be to face something like that? Now, I've never met Rick Warren, but as I said, I've read his book. He seems really genuine to me. And even if you have philosophical differences with the way Rick Warren does ministry, uh, you have to admit that he's done a lot to help people find their way back to God. And and I think it's really unfortunate that he's had to deal with not just uh, non-believers speaking out against him during this time, but even so-called Christians in the church who have opposed him. Well, I follow Rick Warren on Twitter, and it's been really interesting for me to see how he's responded and see some of his tweets since that happened. I've got a couple of them on the screen for you here. Uh, First, he says, grieving is hard. Grieving as public figures harder, while haters celebrate your pain hardest. Your notes have sustained us. And then he said this. He said, after four days, I finally got to see my son's body. He wasn't in it anymore. Absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. And then he wrote this, someone on the internet sold Matthew an unregistered gun. I pray he seeks God's forgiveness. I forgive him, Matthew 6.15. Now, Matthew 6.15 says, but if you do not forgive their sins, the sins of people who sin against you, then God will not forgive you. 
And he wrote this, God's, or grief is God's tool for handling life's losses. If you don't grieve, you get stuck. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And he wrote this, I don't have to know why everything happens since I know God is good. He loves me and life on earth isn't the whole story. You see, Rick Warren's talking about the lower story and the upper story. And the last one is this, and this is where I want to camp for the rest of the morning, okay? Rick Warren wrote this. He said, bad things happen to everyone. It isn't your experiences that define your life. It's your responses that make or break you. It isn't your experiences that define your life. It's your responses that make or break you. In other words, trying to come up with a clever way to say this, and I think I've got it. This is really good. Okay, so we don't have worship notes in your worship program today, but you might want to write this down. If you're on Twitter, you might want to tweet this. This is really good, okay? You can't choose what happens. But you can choose what happens after what happens happens. That's good, right? That's good. You can't choose what happens, but you can choose what happens after what happens happens. In other words, you, you don't get to choose. We don't get to choose, right, the circumstances we find ourselves in. We, we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we do get to decide how we respond. We, we can't select the role that we play in the story, but we do get to choose how we play that role. And so you reach this point in your loss, you reach this point in your story where you just decide, you have to decide, is this going to define me? Is this going to be what my life is about? Is this going to be, is my story going to be a story of loss and of pain and of letdown? Or is it possible, could my story be about something else? And that's hard. I think it was hard for Naomi. We see that it was hard for Naomi. Uh, to not just to get caught up in the pain of the lower story. We, we tend to get focused on what's happening right in front of us. You know, it's like we open this gift wrap box and it's another sweater. And you're disappointed. And, and so Naomi says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. I, I'm just empty. I, I don't have anything anymore. <clears throat> but here's what we're going to find in the rest of this story. If there's one thing that describes the story of Naomi, it's not pain. It's not loss. It doesn't have to be loss. It's redemption. You skip down to verse 22, Ruth 122. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now remember, it was famine that drove them away to begin with. Now as they return, the harvest is just beginning. Maybe there is some hope. You know, but what can two widowed woman, women do to survive in a day in a culture like this? Well, in the Jewish culture, there was help, unlike Moab. In the Jewish culture, there was help. Interestingly enough, long before the government instituted programs like welfare and social security to take care of the poor and hurting, God instructed his people to do it first. If you look back in Leviticus 19, you see this, Leviticus 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. And so what, what this verse is saying is that like now when we see uh, farmers that are harvesting their fields, they have these big combines that don't leave much behind, right? They gather everything up. They separate it all out. The grain goes in a big hopper. Everything's collected. But back in those days when you're collecting by hand or you're collecting with uh, farm animals, often a lot of the grain will get left behind. Well, God says, don't go back and pick that up, okay? Leave it behind. Don't go all the way to the edge of the field. In verse 10, he says, don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor, and the foreigner. You know, leave stuff in your field. Now, in biblical times, there are four groups of people that we're told to look out for. These are four groups of people that didn't have an inheritance in the promised land. There are widows, orphans, foreigners, and the Levites who served as the priests. Those four groups don't have an inheritance. Well, Ruth was both a widow and a foreigner. You know, she was two of the four. 
And, and so uh, in Ruth 2, we see this part of the story, Ruth 2, 2. And Ruth the Moabite. Now, it's interesting that the, the author always refers to her as Ruth the Moabite. It's like she, he wants us to remember she was a foreigner. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And so she went out, she entered a field, and she began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out. Coincidence? I don't think so. Ruth ends up in a field, a field that belongs to the man by the name of Boaz. And and he's a wealthy man. He happens to be a kinsman or a close relative to uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And he's a kind and generous man. Now, we don't know for sure how Boaz was related to Naomi, but we're told in Matthew's genealogy who his mother is. In the New Testament, we find out that Boaz's mother just happened to be a woman named Rahab. Now, if you remember Rahab, uh, she was a prostitute and a Gentile who lived in a town called Jericho. And when Joshua sent spies uh, to look at Jericho to see if they would be able to take it over, Rahab took the spies in and protected them. And in exchange, they agreed to protect her family. And because of that happened, uh, she had a son named Boaz. And now here's Boaz getting ready uh, to protect, to be an important part of this story. You know, because of Joshua, Rahab and her family were spared. Now what you're going to find is because of Rahab and her family... There's going to be another group of people spared. Now, here's Boaz, the son of Rahab. He's able to show generosity to Ruth uh, and protection to Ruth. And it doesn't take long before Boaz he starts wondering, you know, I wonder, wonder if she needs a husband, you know? She's young, she's pretty, she's widowed. So Naomi coaches Ruth into this really weird ritual. And if you read this story, it, I mean, your head might have exploded because it's very bizarre. But where a woman can let a man know that she's really into him. You know, she knows it's harvest times, which means he's going to be working long hours, Uh, he's probably going to sleep on the threshing floor. He's not going to go home and there's probably going to be a harvest party, right? And so after the party tonight, they're going to work late into the night. They're going to have a big dinner and a party and he's going to fall asleep on the threshing floor. And so Ruth three, four, Naomi tells her when he lies down, note the place where he is lying and then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. It's getting hot in here, isn't it? Guys are all just waking up. What? What's going on here? But the truth is, hang on a minute, okay? Because the truth is, uh, it's not what you think. All right, there was a lot of sexual depravity at this time and in this culture, and especially in the land of Moab. But this is the farthest thing uh, from a hookup. In fact, as we see in a minute, it's not sexual at all. What you'll see from Boaz's response is he still understands, he still knows that there's a lot of hoops to jump through before this thing happens. And so Ruth 3, 9, she says, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, here's where we start to get the understanding of this whole weird encounter, okay? And in that day, putting a blanket over a woman was like putting a ring on a finger. It was a proposal for marriage. So Ruth is saying, she's saying, I want you to marry me, but she's not proposing. She's proposing that he propose, okay? She's being a little bit forward in this situation, And in Ruth 3.10, he responds, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. Now, Boaz goes on to explain that here's what's got to happen now. There's another relative that's a closer relative that has the first rights of refusal to redeem both uh, the land and the widow. So Boaz says, let me check into that and I'll see what I can do. So I want to explain to you what was in Israel referred to as the kinsman redeemer law. 
So when a man fell on hard times uh, or, or when he died and didn't leave behind an heir, he was forced to sell his land. The nearest relative, the nearest male relative or the kinsman redeemer was, step, was, was called to step in and purchase that land or to buy it back from an outsider, okay? To keep that relative's property in the family and from coming under the ownership of someone else. And so if you remember when uh, God broke up the promised land, there were 12 tribes in Israel. And each of the 12 tribes kind of got their own section of land. And so what would happen was a lot of times uh, people would intermarry from other tribes. And so if you had this piece of land that was in the tribe of Benjamin and, and they married somebody from the tribe of Gad, um, then uh, that male would inherit that property. But, but God didn't want that to happen. And the Israelites didn't want that to happen. They wanted that, those properties to stay in that tribe. And so they had this law, the kinsman redeemer law. So when that person comes on hard times, has to sell his land, or when he dies, there was the closest relative that could come in and buy the property. And if he died, they would get the widow with the property. Okay, kind of weird, I know. But Boaz comes along, he says, I'll buy the property, I'll take responsibility for Ruth. And it's just, as this is no small act of kindness and sacrifice here, especially that you consider that Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Moabite, she was a foreigner. I mean, he could have taken her on as a concubine. He could have taken her on as a slave, but Boaz goes out of his way to redeem her. Now, Boaz goes to the guy who had first right of refusal on the land, uh, and he says to the guy, hey, here's the land. You can redeem it if you want. And the other guy, who doesn't even get a name, says, okay, I'll redeem it. But then in Ruth 4 or 5, he lets the other part out of the bag. Then Boaz says, oh, one more thing. Uh, on that day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabites. Did I mention that she was a Moab from Moab, though she was a foreigner? The dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, isn't that great? It's like if you're looking for a house, okay, and you find the perfect place, and it's got the kitchen just like you like it, and you love the location, you love the school district, and you go in, you go, all right, I'm going to put an offer on the house. And they say, okay, there's one other thing. There's a crazy lady upstairs, and she comes with the house. You know, so what we see is in Ruth 4.8. So the kinsman redeemer says to Boaz, I don't really want the crazy lady. And he says, buy it yourself. So then Boaz announces to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also inquired, acquired Ruth the Moabites, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with, his, with the property. He says, I'll buy the land. I'll take care of Naomi. I'll marry Ruth. I'll honor her deceased husband and have the child. The family line will not die. He says, I'll fix everything. I will be the redeemer. Now, when you hear the word redeemer, you probably think of church uh, because redeem is a word that we don't use much outside of church. But the, the truth is, I mean, even though it's a churchy word, redeem really means to buy something back or to save it from captivity or to exchange something of little value for something of greater value. That's what the word redeem means. And so Boaz is an amazing man who has no legal obligation to do this. It's just pure grace. But God rewards him for his goodness. And what did he get out of it? He got a great piece of property and a great wife in Ruth. And for Ruth and Naomi, it was as if they opened the gift and maybe the box looked dumb. But when they opened it up, it was something better than they ever could have imagined. And so what's the box you're facing today? What's that in your life that you're looking at? And it's just not at all what you expected. You know, because the box that we're quick to label pain or death or adultery or addiction or divorce or cancer or terminated or infertility or abuse or loss or debt or job loss. That, that doesn't have to be your life. That doesn't have to be your story. Your story does not have to be about loss. 
Your story can be about redemption. When Naomi finally opened the box, she found a pretty cool gift. Boaz and Ruth had a baby boy. In Ruth 4.14, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a family guardian. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. It looked like Naomi's life was over, but now it's redeemed. She's gone from being a bitter old woman to a blessed grandmother. And the final picture we have in Naomi in the book is of her holding her grandchild. What a blessed woman she is. And so Naomi is no longer Mara, but she's back to the pleasant Naomi. It's a really great story. And if you didn't get to read it this week, I hope, last week, I hope you'll take time this week to read it. And as you do, when you get toward the end, you might think, you know what, that is a great story, but why is it even in the Bible? I don't know that I get that, especially right where it is. Well, we find out in just the last few verses of the book of Ruth as we read about Ruth's son, Naomi's grandson-in-law, uh, Ruth 4.17 says, And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now through this story, you know, through this family, through Ruth's willingness to stick by her mother-in-law comes Obed. Through Ruth's obedience to God, a God she really barely even knew, comes King David. And that's how Bethlehem came to be known as the city of David, because that's where Ruth's great-grandson would be born. And that's why hundreds of years later, when Joseph and Mary had to travel to their hometown for the census while Mary was pregnant, they went back to Bethlehem, the city of David. And so through the line of David, we get Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. So while Boaz paid a price to redeem Ruth and redeem his family's property, Jesus paid the price to redeem you. And to redeem me. We can't choose what happens. But we can choose what happens after what happens, happens. Our circumstances don't tell our whole story. How we respond tells the story. I mean, if you think about this, if not for the famine, this story wouldn't have happened. If not for the death of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, this story wouldn't have happened. If not for the Israelites sparing the life of a prostitute named Rahab, it wouldn't have happened. If not for Ruth's sacrifice to go live with her mother-in-law, it wouldn't have happened. All these things, all these responses to circumstances conspiring together to produce the greatest line of royalty man has ever known. And David was the king after God's own heart. Right on down to Jesus, the king of kings, who died to save you and me. And when you see a story like this, it can really make you believe Romans 8.28 that says all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now you see why this is such a great story. God working and weaving things together to provide a lineage for his son to be born, Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer. Would you pray with me? God, I'm thankful for this story. More than that, I'm thankful for the story of how you can use the difficult times in our lives, the disappointments, to be redeemed and to be used for your glory, God. We can take our story that could so easily be about loss, about hurt, about frustration, about disappointment, and, and God, you can turn it in to a story of redemption, a story of grace, a story of great things that happen, a story that can live on through the ages like this story of Ruth. And so I'm thankful for that today. But Lord, as I hear this story, as we read through this, I, I, I'm confident that there are people here that are dealing with deep disappointment in their lives. And as we struggle with that, as we walk through our lower story, 
I think we need a reminder, God, just almost every week that you have an upper story that never changes. That your son Jesus came as part of your upper story to free us from our disappointment, to free us from our sin, from our shame, uh, from our hurt, from our pain, from our frustration, to set us free from the captivity that we can sometimes feel in our consequences, God. That how we respond to those consequences, that how we look to you in those consequences, that, that what happens after what happens happens is the most important thing. And so, God, I am thankful for your son. I'm thankful for the way that you look to redeem, to take things that are of little or no value and trade them for something of higher value. And most of all, God, I'm thankful that even in our lower story, that you continue to be the God of all in your upper story. I'm thankful for your position as Lord because I would not make a very good God. And so thanks for that. And as we go into a time of worship, we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you know, more than just about any other story in the Bible, I think the story of Ruth shows us how God can rise above all things, how he is the Lord of all, and he can take our lower story, no matter what happens in the disappointment and the frustration of our lower story, and turn it, and, and turn it around for his glory because he is the Lord of all. And so we're going to sing one more song today, and we're just going to declare that truth right now. Would you stand and sing with us?